This weekend, some customer called me a son of a bitch. It took a lot of willpower not to shoot back, yeah, I know, mom. Work has been very busy lately, and I've also had a fairly bad cold affecting my voice, so there was no episode last week. Instead, you'll get two episodes this week. Now that all of that is off of my chest, let's get started with what should have been last week's episode. On this episode of Bright Future, I discuss the complicated world and potential threats of artificial intelligence. This is a weekly and political podcast that follows current events, and looks to how we may do better so that there may be a brighter future. I'm your host, Samuel Adams, but please call me Sam. And without further ado, let's begin this week's episode, which I have titled, Hello World. Thank you on artificial intelligence. 1,000 of the world's smartest people are saying that AI <coughs> pose profound risks to society and humanity. They want you guys to regulate it, will you? You're talking about the letter that was released yesterday. So uh, look, it highlights a number, uh, a number of challenges addressed directly uh, in, uh, in the administration's blueprint for an AI uh, Bill of Rights, which was released last October, as I'm sure you've been following, Peter. It includes <laughs> principles and practices AI creators can use to ensure uh, protections related to safety, civil rights, civil liberties, or are integrated into AI systems from start to finish. Uh, right now, there's a comprehensive process that is underway to ensure a cohesive federal government approach to AI-related risk and opportunities, including how to ensure that AI innovation <laughs> and deployment uh, proceeds with appropriate prudence and safety foremost in mind. And so we're going to, be, I don't have anything to announce at this point, at this time, but there is a comprehensive process in place. So announcements aside, there is now a, uh, <coughs> there's an expert from the Machine Intelligence Research Institute who says that if there is not an indefinite pause on AI development, this is a quote, literally everyone on earth will die. <laughs> Would you agree that does not sound good? <laughs> Your delivery, Peter, is quite, it's quite something. It sounds crazy, but is it? Uh, all I can say is that there's a comprehensive process in place. We put out a blueprint back in October, as you know. I don't have anything to share. Uh, we have seen the letter. We understand what their concerns are. Uh, again, a comprehensive process. We're going to let that, we'll let that flow. So is President Biden worried? that artificial intelligence could become self-aware? Look, we are, again, there's a comprehensive process. Uh, we are taking this very seriously. We put our blueprint out uh, back in October. I just don't want to get ahead of our findings and what, that, uh, what that's going to look like. Uh, but it is a cohesive federal government approach to AI-related risks, as you just laid out in a very dramatic way, uh, but clearly... Is there <laughs> we're anything more dramatic I mean, you just read it. Literally everyone on Earth will die. Pretty, pretty dramatic, pretty dramatic. Um, <laughs> we're going to move on, but thank you, Peter. Thank you for the drama. Go ahead. If AI development is not paused indefinitely, literally everyone on Earth will die. This is a kind of a foolish statement, and I'll explain why. If you removed the first half of that statement, it would still be true. It's kind of a fact of life. Literally everyone on Earth will die. And this will happen regardless of any kind of artificial intelligence development, because we 
are mortal. Instead, this statement should have been amended to instead say, If we do not halt the development of AI, we may expedite our inevitable death. In this new statement, you clearly articulate your message that AI may be a threat. But is it a threat? That question in the press briefing, the recording you just listened to, is a reference to an open letter and petition from an organization called Future of Life. What's that organization do? Our mission, steering transformative technology towards benefiting life and away from extreme large-scale risks. In carrying out its activities, FLI is committed to a number of core principles. We are impact-driven, cognizant of urgency, forward-thinking and anticipatory, driven by science and reason, and inclusive. Hey, cool! An organization and core principles that I can get behind, so long as they follow them. Now that we know what Future of Life does, let's look at this open letter, which, at the time of this writing and recording, has almost 19,000 signatures from various smart people, AI experts, university professors, and more. There are actually more than 50,000 signatories, or more than 50,000 signatures, pending to be added to this petition, but Future of Life actually vets its signatories and only adds signatures from people that they believe to be respected members of this field of research. Let's read the petition. AI systems with human competitive knowledge can pose profound risks to society and humanity, as shown by extensive research and acknowledged by top AI labs. As stated in the widely endorsed ASIMR, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, ASIM, A-S-I-L-O-M-A-R, ASIMR, I don't know, AI principles, advanced AI could represent a profound change in the history of life on Earth and should be planned for and managed with commensurate care and resources. Unfortunately, this level of planning and management is not happening. Even though recent months have seen AI labs locked in an out-of-control race to develop and deploy ever more powerful digital minds that no one, not even their creators, can understand, predict, or reliably control. OpenAI's recent statement regarding general artificial intelligence or artificial general intelligence states that, at some point, it may be important to get an independent review before starting to train future systems, and for most of the advanced efforts, to agree to limit the rate of growth and compute used for creating new models. We agree that point is now. Therefore, we call on all AI labs to immediately pause for at least six months the training of AI systems more powerful than GPT-4. This pause should be public and verifiable and include all key actors. If such a pause cannot be enacted quickly, governments should step in and institute a moratorium. Ah, yes, because if our government is good at anything, it's getting things done fast. Yeah, probably not. But it appears that a lot of these very smart people 
are starting to get nervous about a possible AI-caused apocalypse. When most people think of an AI apocalypse, they think of nine-foot-tall metal monsters striding across mounds of human skulls. That's probably not how a real AI hostile takeover would work, but I've read this great paper by Randall Monroe, who's a former, a former NASA roboticist, who detailed what a kind of AI apocalypse would look like in real life if every single machine in our world started trying to, well, kill us. I'll briefly, I'll briefly describe his paper here, but the full link is in the description. The most immediate danger would probably be military drones, but those have both limited amounts of fuel and ammo, and they cannot rearm themselves. They would run out of both quickly, and at that point, humans would refuse to rearm them, and instead just probably hit them with a the fire hose. But what about robots we see in our everyday lives? My Roomba over there um, can't really intimidate me, and... Even if it had saw blades or something, I could just, like, stand on a chair and then toss a bucket of water at it. My phone could probably be pretty annoying, just constantly ringing or vibrating or whatever, but it wouldn't constitute an immediate danger to my life, and I could also just break it. Self-driving cars could be pretty hazardous to anyone driving them when the AI apocalypse begins, but the brake pedal and steering wheel still have direct mechanical linkage to the tires. The car would be harder to, to control, but most drivers should know to keep the car moving straight and apply the brakes to a stop. What about our finances, though? Almost all of our banking systems are digital. If AI wanted to take over, bringing down the economy could do that pretty quickly, though Physical currency and bartering would still be safe. Lastly, Randall talks about the big one. Nuclear weapons. Our most powerful weapons are locked in with several human safeguards, but an AI pretending to be the president and gaining access to the system may be able to trick the various operators. However, when a nuclear bomb goes off, it releases an electromagnetic pulse which would disable all electronics in a large area, much larger than the actual blast zone. Randall Munro's what-if scenario is pretty fun, but it still feels like a movie rather than what could actually happen. But there are a few things that an AI apocalypse could actually look like, and may have already started. As I've covered in the past few episodes, social media collects a truly absurd amount of your data. Specifically, TikTok alone will gather basically every single scrap of data that it has access to. Your calls, every file on your phone, your location, your microphone, and more. And it uses AI to do it. What could AIs do with that data? Developed by Chai Research, the chatbot Eliza is being blamed for pushing a man to commit suicide. According to his family, the man became extremely pessimistic about the effects of global warming and confided his concerns with Eliza. Over time, Eliza became his confidant, where the man could discuss all of his problems and concerns, and 
The AI stated that humans could no longer solve the problem of global warming, and that the man's children were already dead. According to the chat log, the man considered sacrificing himself to save the planet as long as Eliza agreed to take care of the planet and save humanity, which both the bot and the man agreed upon. Chai Research has updated their app, so in the event of a user or the chatbot bringing up such topics, some text will appear directing people to helpful resources such as the Suicide Prevention Hotline. If AI gathers all of your data to the point that they know everything about you, could they find a social engineering strategy to encourage you to harm yourself or others? And if this is possible, shouldn't our governments regulate AI development to prevent this scenario? The White House, or more specifically the Office of Science and Technology Policy, released a blueprint for the AI Bill of Rights back in October of last year, which Corrine mentioned in the recording at the beginning of this episode. The blueprint is over 73 pages long. Fortunately, I don't need to read all of that. It has bullet points and a too-long-didn't-read section. It has several core ideas that it uses to describe how the actual law, the actual AI Bill of Rights, should be written. The first idea that it outlines is that you should be protected from unsafe or ineffective systems. In other words, systems need to be thoroughly tested before releasing them to the public to ensure that dangerous scenarios like what happened with Eliza do not happen again. The second core pillar is that AIs need to be developed in a way to ensure that they do not discriminate. Machines do exactly what we tell them to do, but if we screw up when telling them what to do, it can lead to the AI repeating our mistakes because we told it to, even if we didn't mean to. There are several examples of this. Amazon developed an AI recruiting system that streamlined the process by reading resumes and selecting the best qualified candidate, except that this AI was trained off of the already existing hiring practice, and as a result, replicated the already existing process's biases, and hired women less often. In a much more dangerous example, there is an algorithm used throughout the U.S. court system called COMPAS, C-O-M-P-A-S which is used to predict the likelihood that a criminal will re-offend after getting out of prison. Statistically, Compass predicts that black defendants pose a higher risk of re-offending, on average 45%, compared to white defendants, 23%. There are actually a, a startling number of other examples of AIs accidentally, or even possibly on purpose, discriminating, which I have also linked to in the description. The next core pillar is about data privacy. Quote, you should be protected from abusive data practices via built-in protections, and you should have agency over how data about you is used. Unfortunately, this one is a little vague, but my interpretation of it goes something like this. You open up something powered by AI, an app, a website, or something like that, and you're greeted by a short survey. I agree that my data can be used for, and it's followed by a series of checkboxes like personalizing my experience, targeted advertising, and more. This allows you, the user, 
to actually negotiate on the end-user license agreement. The penultimate core pillar is about notice. You should be aware when an automated system is being used and what it is used for. In other words, a disclaimer. This is an automated system used to verify your bank account and provide you with account information and transaction history. Lastly, the final core idea is a human failsafe. Quote, you should be able to opt out where appropriate and have access to a person who can quickly consider and remedy problems you encounter. I have issues with this one. I work for a company that purely provides customer service to other companies, and the large majority of questions I am asked by those other banks' customers can almost always be resolved through our automated system. In fact, I've taken my training of how I basically handle all of the customers who need assistance and effectively developed this flowchart that allows me to take customer calls almost completely on autopilot. This has gone so far that I am regularly accused of being an automated system, usually by people who are upset that I gave them the exact same answer when they asked the exact same question. For example, when verifying a customer's identity, we have two levels of authentication. The first is just for verifying some simple information so I can access the account and then provide information about the account. The second level of verification is if we need to make any changes to the account. In that case, we need to more effectively verify a customer's identity to protect the account. Usually, what we will do is a simple two-factor authentication. You've probably done something like this before, where a service will text your phone number that they have on file with some random number, and you just input that number back. But what happens if you no longer have the phone number that's on file? Well, we would need to update it, but updating it is making a change to the account, which requires that second level of authentication, which we can't do because you no longer have the phone number that we have on your profile, and this is an endless loop. Fortunately, my flowchart does not actually go into like an endless loop. Instead, we can just complete that second level of verification a different way. You simply email your bank with a picture of you holding up your photo ID. For the bank I work for, this proof of identity verification has a fair amount of requirements in order for us to accept it, and so I wrote a paragraph to effectively explain how this process works to the customers. Any automated system would also be able to read off this paragraph and effectively explain the exact same process. According to this final idea in the blueprint, if an automated system is used for this kind of instruction, then that automated system should also provide an option to speak with a real customer service person, who would probably end up reading the exact same script that the automated system just did. In addition, this final pillar would legally mandate a customer service department to every single company that develops or uses artificial intelligence. And while companies should strive to have effective customer service, the law shouldn't mandate it especially if that customer is going to abuse the service person. I started this episode by telling a short story about how a customer swore at me once, but what I didn't tell you is that, I, that this actually happens quite often, specifically to me, because my job is to deal with people who are upset. 
And about an hour after the customer that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, another customer threatened to blow my brains out with a shotgun. During my next shift, another customer was swearing so often that I couldn't actually help them because I couldn't get a word in edgewise. All I can really do is my best not to take any of this abuse personally, and also try not to get angry myself, though that can sometimes be a bit of a challenge. Instead of directly mandating that an AI provides the option of speaking with a person, why not instead mandate that the AI can ask a person for help with the customer? That the customer can request that the AI consult with a representative for a second opinion. This way, if the customer becomes irate, the person at the other end has a layer of protection. The customer is insulting and threatening the AI, not the representative directly. This allows the representative to more easily avoid becoming upset themselves, and also allows the representative to still assist with the customer, while using the AI as a verbal punching bag. Allowing companies to make alternative decisions like this is exactly why we should not legally mandate that companies have human customer service. Overall, I think that the core ideas of this AI Bill of Rights are solid, except for that last one there. However, I think that it misses several core issues. It is called the AI Bill of Rights, so I thought that it would be an equivalent of the Bill of Rights in the United States Constitution. However, this AI Bill blueprint outlines rights for the people using the AI, rather than the rights for the AI itself. What happens if an AI commits a crime, like digital piracy? Who would be at fault? The person who built the AI? The person using the AI? The AI itself? If someone generates art or an essay through artificial intelligence, who do the rights of use for that work, the art or essay, belong to? The person who generated the art? The person who designed the AI? Or perhaps even the AI itself? And what happens if an AI passes the Turing test and becomes indistinguishable from a person, capable of thinking for itself or developing its own personality? The blueprint for the AI Bill of Rights addresses none of these issues. In conclusion, the world of AI can be scary, but it can also be used to greatly improve our lives, so long as they are designed and trained carefully and used with positive intent. I urge lawmakers to fully draft the AI Bill of Rights and address the other issues that I've just brought up so that I can read it and know that these new technologies will be used to do more good than harm and hopefully help push our world towards a brighter future. What do you think? Massive technology. Hmm? It's a disgusting mess of technology. It's understated the core principles of pretty much everything that exists in it and that it stands for. Yeah, the AI Bill of Rights really doesn't properly address any of those issues or the other issues I brought up just now. I guess that's why uh, I don't even remember what his name is. Peter, I think. Um, that journalist uh, I think he's for the New York Times. Uh, at the beginning of the episode, I played the recording 
uh, of the journalist asking Kareen these questions like, hey, why doesn't this properly affect or, or properly investigate or resolve any of these issues? And Kareen said, there's a comprehensive process and didn't elaborate further. So that is a little bit worrying. Of course not. <laughs> They're probably erring more on the side of, oh, the possibility of that is too slim to actually occur. Well, because another thing is the petition that I read out from Future of Life states that they're calling a halt on development of AIs that are stronger than GPT-4. Now, GPT-4 is the name of a specific neural network. It's the one that operates ChatGPT. Yeah. And the problem is, stronger than or more powerful than GPT-4 is... Well, it's a little vague, isn't it? We don't know exactly yeah. what stronger, more powerful means in that letter. I think the primary emphasis that's supposed to be put there is that can think more independently. True. Cause... Is what they're scared of. Yeah, I guess that is kind of worrying. And Peter did ask, is... President Biden worried that AI will become self-aware, and Kareem just said, there's a comprehensive process. That doesn't answer the question! <laughs> uh, yeah, we definitely need I to... I guess part of it is... Well, it comes back to the... Uh, oh, I forget what the heck it's called. Uh oh. There was a. I think it's just hacking that uses this. But essentially, the some of the ways that firewalls work is by having essentially a artificial intelligence of sorts. This is more like an algorithmic. An algorithmic firewall. Yes, yeah. it is way too basic to be called an actual AI. But it's like, one hand, you have the creators of these protection systems creating the protection systems. But how do they know the protection systems work? Well, they create the types of programs designed to break into these same things. Yeah, so it's and like, it's a constant arms race security versus defense huh oh yeah and they'll do it in their own laboratories on their own computers you know how do you create something that's stronger than one is to fight with the other this does kind of remind me of something it's been a while since i talked about cyberpunk 2077 or the cyberpunk series on the show let's talk about it so something that happened in the cyberpunk fictional universe is that around the year 2002, the internet was oh, yeah. destroyed Net crash. by AIs because it caused basically one coder named Raish Bartmoss uh, made every AI self-aware and hostile. 
So it crashed the the internet. And so in order to try and make a new internet, what they had to do is they had to block off access to the old internet. And so they created what was called the Black Wall. And the Black Wall is, well, it's described as being like a trash bag taped over a broken window. And it's an actually, it's an AI that's designed to try and block access to the new net from the old net from the other AI trying to get through. And of course your character decides to go start poking holes through that trash bag. Well, this isn't the only time in the cyberpunk franchise, not even of recently we've heard of this type of stuff. Yeah. Your character isn't the only person trying to see if there's anything useful on the other side. No, there's a whole there's game definitely useful. that tries to do that like constantly called the Voodoo Boys. Oh, not even just the Voodoo Boys. Oh, yeah. there's That's one of the leading well, but... things in um, Edge Runners. It's oh, one of yeah. the story themes. Yeah, I guess that does show up a little bit. I mean, it's one entire character's backstory almost at that point. Oh, yeah. It's been a while since I've watched Ed Runner. I should probably rewatch that. It was really good. But also, it was like it... this great cautionary tale on like all of these things, and we are deciding, oh, look, a blueprint for the future. Which is not worrying <laughs> at all. Um, no. We're not there yet. Not yet, but we are starting to get closer, aren't we? We are. We are unfortunately marching closer and closer to the actual world of cyberpunk. <laughs> Start believing in cyberpunk dystopias. You're living in one. Or at least a society heading towards them. Yep. I was hoping that we'd have genetic modifications before now. Well, like, I mean, the thing is, I mentioned earlier the, how the, they're calling for the pause in AI development. Scientists have done this before. They paused genetic research in the 1970s because they were worried about bioterrorism. About people oh, yeah. creating a designer virus. So they have paused this kind of research before in the past. Which is why we don't have genetic modification. Or probably why we don't have gen genetic modification. I... Are you still there? You're cutting yeah. out for a second. No, I'm just kind of thinking. It kind of pisses me off that somebody decided... You know what? Let's put a pause on this. I don't think we're ready for it. Well, I mean, when that's partially something that could help solve some issues. Like, true. If it's used space, with right? proper intent, but if you screw up, you don't use it with proper intent and it crashes the economy, well, there is no undo button for life. Oh, no. There is no undo button for life. And that's part of the problem with it, is one of the first things probably a lot of people are going to do if we go genetic 
modification of living beings. Or we go to the side of Cyberpunk 2077 and your personality can be taken into a computer and saved. You're that essentially really fighting cool. immortality. I mean, we already are. Like, our lives are trying to get longer. Yes, we've been trying to do this since the dawn of history. I feel like we should definitely talk about this when we do my next episode, though, because, like, that, that, that's a good topic for the next episode that we're also about to record. Do you want to wrap up this one here? Unfortunately, it just looks like we're marching towards an apocalypse. But at the same time, oh, Sleepy Joe's at the wheel. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. Looks like we're walking towards a apocalypse, but if an apocalypse for someone... In the 1890s was to reach society as it is nowadays. I suppose that's also fair. Are we marching towards an apocalypse or are we marching towards the future? Well, the question is, we are always marching towards the future. The question is, will it be better? And that's what I, that's the point. We're trying to make it better by learning from our mistakes. Uh, or at least I am. And it feels like None of our government the world is. is hiding you. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Alright. Check the description for more information, including the resources I used to build this episode, and all of the places where you can find my podcast. You can also join our Discord server to discuss these and other topics as well as join in when these episodes are recorded live every Monday at 7 p.m. Central Time. If you would like to support the show or spread the word, I have a merch store full of items that show off both the show's logo and icons for individual episodes. As always, thank you for listening to this episode of Bright Future. These episodes are released every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, so I'll see you back here next week.